Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. Hi, this is the voice of BattleBots, Mark Biro. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. This is Frank Joseph. I'm the author of an essay in the latest book, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Hi, this is Linda Godfrey, author of American Monsters. Hello, my name is Robert Salas. I'm the author of Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Time. Hi, my name is Bob Luca. And my name is Betty Andreasen Luca. Hi, this is Jesse Proofus, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Up. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, founder of Closet Statistics. I'm Jeremiah Bomek the producer of The Real of Horror. Hi, my name is Bill Hall, author of The World's Most Haunted House. Hi, this is Micah Hanks, and I'm the author of the book The Ghost Rockets. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show, blogtalkradio.com.
of Dying Star. That's hot. From the snow-capped mountaintops of Middle Earth. Orbiting above the Earth in a stolen alien spacecraft. The Graveyard Shift Online Radio Talk Show. Now, strap on your seatbelt, get ready to kneel, true believers, because here's your host, Emmy. Welcome to the Graveyard Shift out there in Radioland. This is your illustrious host, Emmy, the greatest talk show host that ever will be, ever has been, ever is, on the greatest talk show that ever was, is, and ever shall be, the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. You're listening to us July 18, 2015. How are you doing out there, guys? Hope all y'all have had a wonderful summer so far. I know I have been spending some great quality time with my family here, with my wife and kids, and, you know, going to different places, doing different things, you know, avoiding all kinds of missile attacks from my enemy over there, and, oh, you guys didn't know I had an enemy that could do that? Yeah, 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 they're called the Authority Smashing Hour, I know I talk about them all the time, (laughs) may as well call myself a subscriber to them or something. They never talk about me that much. I mention them every show, and they never talk about me. No, I don't really mention them in every show. You know, actually, if those of you who follow that show would uh, were paying attention, then you you probably recognized one of the callers. I believe it was yesterday, last night. I actually called in on the on Derek in his show just to mess around, and uh, we had a we had a fun time, you know. Uh, you know, you guys already know that I'm a conservative, and obviously Derek isn't. Neither is most of the people all in the show, but uh, it's not all of them. But you know, hey, we we uh, we're good friends, and um, we actually had a really nice talk. And you know, wouldn't really call it a debate, really. It was mostly just us talking about just different things. So if you want to find out what that's about, you can go ahead and you know search on their show, but. I just warn you ahead of time, it's an anarchist TV, it's an anarchist talk show, so you better, you know, steal your political reser- resolve there, and uh, if you can't handle it, then don't listen to it, I, and no, I don't talk about any of that stuff, we just, like I said, when I when I got on the show, we were just talking about just different, just random subjects, and it, was, it, it didn't really get that political, not really, um, I mean, of course, I told him, hey, look, you know, you don't really want me to... <laughs> say what I think is going to be contrary to what you guys believe in, and this is your show, and I don't want to really, you know, step on you, step on your lines there, as it were, so uh, anyway, I, I had a good time, but this show is not political, at least not tonight, tonight I'm going to be talking about all the cool news, but you know, before I do that, I wanted to apologize to our, we were supposed to have a guest interview to air tonight. With Marie D. Jones, the author of Mind Wars, and our schedules keep getting you know, messed up, mixed up. So hopefully next week we'll be doing that interview, and I'll be airing her interview next Saturday. And by the way, I have connected with Nick Redfern, the awesome, famous celeb author, 
on his new book, Bloodline of the Gods. That should be interesting. So I'm sure it's in that same ancient aliens uh, thought process. I'm, I'm, I mean, Nick knows I'm a big skeptic on that, but I'm always up for discussing it and debating it and whatnot. But um, you know, I, anything that Nick says, I'm, <laughs> I'll air it because it's Nick. I mean, he does not need to ask me twice. So at any rate, what's in the news today? Well, anybody that's been watching, and and you know I'm into NASA and space stuff. You know that there's like a thing going on with Pluto, right? I mean, first he was Mickey's dog, and then Minnie took him for a little while, and then Donald watched him, and then Goofy said he wanted to watch him, but he never came to pick him up, and then, you know, poor Pluto was left in the doghouse, kind of just like wondering, what the heck's going on? Nobody cares about me. What? What, Steven? I was trying, oh, Pluto the planet. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I was talking about Pluto the dog oh pluto the planet well you guys know all kidding aside we have a spacecraft called new horizons and new horizons was sent to pluto to learn more about it well it got there it's been sending us images lots of selfies of pluto you know lots of you know you know turn this way pluto oh yeah show me that come on you're you're in the jungle pluto you're in the jungle and you're you're a lion and oh yeah, show me that sexy tail, Pluto. Show me the sexy mane. You're a lion and you're king of the jungle. No, really. Well, we've been learning a lot of stuff about Pluto. And one of the newest things we've been learning is that Pluto, I kid you not, Pluto has a tail. Pluto has a tail. The planet. I am not joking. This is real. How much more does this planet have to resemble the dog. I mean, seriously. This is, I'm not kidding, I'm reading this on NASA. It's, okay, obviously it's not a physical tail, like a dog, okay? But it's it's, it's more like a frigid cloud of ionized gases trailing an estimated 40,000 to 68,000 miles behind it. Okay, now the giant tail is actually part of the planet's atmosphere, except that the bits of atmosphere are, are being stripped away by solar wind, a torrent of elect- which is a torrent of electrically charged particles that constantly pours out of the sun in all directions. Now, see, we see the atmosphere way far out, uh, which is a quote from Randy Gladstone, a New Horizons co-investigator at Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio. Quote, we see it from the ground out to 1,000 miles above the surface. Now, see, because Pluto is such a tiny planet, it's basically a fraction of a percent as massive as the Earth. Its atmosphere escapes directly into space. Now, see, Gladstone and others discovered the tail after examining data from the solar wind around Pluto. Okay. It's, it, well, actually, it's, it's an instrument called that. It's called SWAP, Solar Wind Around Pluto Instrument, on the New Horizons spacecraft. The device found an anomaly in the solar wind around the dwarf planet, a, de- a depression composed of nitrogen ions. The depression is the tail, and it extends an unknown length behind the planet. So that's really cool. I'm sure we'll learn more stuff about it as the information becomes available. So, I mean, I'm just saying, how much more needs to be revealed for us to just say this is Mickey's dog? I mean, really, I'm I'm not, I don't even know what to say anymore. Now, I'll, there are people that think there might be, of course, anytime you talk about a planet, you talk about 
fact that there might be life there. Is there life? Well, there are certain things, certain features that people are seeing on, on the Pluto pictures where they're thinking, oh, well, maybe that's life, you know. Well, a NASA expert believes there could be an eroded comet or asteroid crater laying by what could also be tectonic boundaries. Now, the close-up images of an unusual-looking crater with the letter C shape inside and lines running away from it towards the lower hemisphere of Pluto um, said there could be like an eroded impact crater there. Now, now, this is significant as impact craters are usually eroded through geological processes such as earthquakes, meaning the planet is or was active with a warm center. And, you know, obviously a warm center could mean more chance of water, which is one of the triggers for early life as we know it. Um, and we're talking about beneath the, the surface, the frozen surface. And, guys, we're not talking about, like, whales or fish. I mean, who knows? But we're talking about, like, bacteria, you know, amoeba, the plankton maybe, if even. So, we, you know, this is all skeptic, skeptical, um, you know, stuff here. This is like, you know figuring out from what we can see through the images but you know the images could be anything without actually landing on Pluto and actually just you know studying it firsthand we'll never know for sure now as with any space exploration as with anything having to do with going into space there's going to be those people that think nothing is being done just like you have the group of people that think that think we don't we never landed on the moon and yes, I know some of you are in that group. I still don't understand why you think that. I mean, I, I, I'm not even going to give it the, 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 the breath to even utter why, because I think it's ludicrous. There's an actual Pluto truther movement that claimed the flyby never happened. It was faked. I'm kidding. Oh, dear God. I mean, I'm serious. They think NASA staged the whole thing. Okay. Uh, now, a man, I'm not going to say his name because he doesn't know I'm talking about him, and I, I consider that slander, so I'm not going to say his name. There's a, there's a guy, you can look him up on YouTube if you want. He questioned the initial Pluto images, and he said, quote, this is silliness and games. They're literally robbing the American people and then lying to them. And uh, mm, his argument is this. How is it that NASA's image of Pluto, supposedly taken from only a billion miles away, are of a poorer quality than those he took of Jupiter with his telescopic camera from 484? Hold on, guys. I'm having a little problem with my computer here. Okay. 484 million miles away. Now, he's referring to a photo of the... Ah! Oh, you stupid computer. I hate you so much. Okay. Referring to a photo of the New Horizons spacecraft, Crow says in the video, it's probably sitting in a Burbank Hollywood soundstage somewhere, he adds. If you want to see the real Pluto, you've got to go to Disneyland. Now, he, you know, they did this whole interview with him. I cannot link to the interview. That's actually what I tried to do because it's uh, copyright protected. So, unfortunately, I can't you know, link to the interview, but you can look it up if you want. It's all you have to do is look up Pluto truther movement. 
and it's actually gaining traction. Unfortunately, I think it's not. I think it's absolutely ludicrous that anybody would even think that this did not happen. I mean, I'm sorry. Yes, I realize that the government lies to us a lot. I realize they spend a lot of money, our money on stuff, and then they just do whatever they want and they say this is what they're doing and they're not. Listen to me. There are things that cannot be faked, and that is one of them. I'm sorry. There's just that. that yes, I know we have CGI. I know we can fake any pretty much anything. But when it comes to this stuff, there is no benefit behind it. What would possibly be the benefit of saying we went to Pluto? Why would people even – there's no benefit to it at all. Except for saying we went there as as a you know kind of like space exploratory related discovery, it, it does not make any sense to me whatsoever. And it, quite frankly, it's disrespectful. In my in my in my opinion, it's disrespectful to the people that came before all of the NASA scientists that worked really hard on this. If you go to I think some of these people that are in these these little movements like the Apollo you know moon landing truth movement whatever. And the people who are against the the Pluto thing, I think they need to go to Kennedy Space Center. If you haven't been there already, please make a point to go and go and see for yourself the actual vehicles that went there. There are tests that can be done to these vehicles, and they were to to be to verify that they actually went to these locations. For example, there are minerals and you know chemicals that only exist in space or on the moon. These vehicles were tested for these minerals and chemicals, and guess what? They had them. And speaking of somebody that's been on the moon, this Apollo astronaut, um, whose name is Edgar Mitchell, has come out in, in, in saying that he believes in the existence of extraterrestrials. Now, because, see, here, here's the thing. The, the, the reason why all this is coming up is because now because of the Pluto flyby, we, the United States has become the only nation in history to ever visit every single planet in the solar system. Okay? And we have to remember the stuff that happened before, all the people that came before this. Like, you know, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, who took the first and second set on the moon. And you know, but it was it didn't just end there. The, the the Apollo missions continued for three years after that first voyage. I mean, unfortunately, Armstrong passed away in 2012, and Aldrin he's 85 now, and he uses his legacy to pass on to other congressmen. Now, you know, this guy Edgar Mitchell was quoted as saying, "You develop an instant global consciousness." a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck, drag him a quarter of a million miles out there, and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. Not only that, but his controversial views on the existence of extraterrestrials are often cited by UFO documentaries, conspiracy theorists, um, he, he got the Presidential Medal of Freedom for Ronald Reagan in 1970. Um, I mean, he's been very outspoken about this stuff. He was asked, you know, can you describe what it was like to travel from Earth to the moon? He said, well, it was an incredible feeling and certain life-changing feeling. You know, there's a certain pleasure that goes along with a cooperative effort on a mission like Apollo 14. For me, working as an organizer, having come off that job successfully is always a satisfactory thing that can happen. Um, let me see if he talks about 
Okay. You know, I had it here and now it's gone and I hate when that happens. Don't you? Don't you hate when you got something and it just like doesn't, you know, doesn't talk about it? Ah, here we go. You have made controversial statements in the past regarding the existence of extraterrestrials. Do you still stand by these statements? And he said, quote, yes, I do. The evidence for visiting of other species goes back in historical record, back past the Bible to ancient times. Clearly, they have been coming here in more recent times. Governments keep hushing it up. They don't really want to talk about it. So, you know, we've had, and I've even talked about how there have been files opened because of the Freedom of Information Act. Look, guys, we don't know how much longer that Freedom of Information Act is going to be around. There's going to be an administration that's going to come, and they're going to do away with it. Mark my words, they're going to do away with it. And until that ha- excuse me, until that happens, we need to use it to our advantage. I know it costs money to get the stuff, but the information, but those of you out there that have it and are interested in this, you better get it now because one day it's not going to it's just not going to be there to get. As far as UFOs are concerned, you know, He's not the only one that's seen it. There's been a lot of famous people that have seen UFOs. I mean, my gosh, there's a it's a treasure trove of stuff here. I, I didn't even know some of this stuff. Russell Crowe filmed a video that he posted on YouTube. You can look it up, which he said was intended to show fruit bats at, botani- at some botanical gardens, and instead it seemed to show what he claimed was a UFO. He's still defended to this day. Dan Aykroyd, you know, the Ghostbuster, he was awoken in the middle of the night in the 80s claimed that at 3 in the morning he told his wife he wanted to go outside because the aliens were calling him. Now, you know, they brushed it off. They went back to sleep. Well, it turned out later that, you know, a lot of people in that neighborhood were woken up at the same time that morning. And some of them that actually made it to the front door witnessed a large pink spiral suspended on the skyline. And Aykroyd recently backed up his claims in TV interviews. You know the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger? He's been convinced by not one but two UFO sightings. The first was at a Glastonbury Music Festival in 1968 where he witnessed a cigar-shaped and luminous craft lighting up the sky. And he said it was enough of an event for him to install a, I love this, a UFO detector at his home, a device that picked up changes in electromagnetic fields around it. Now, it was only a year later in 69 that he had his second direct experience with, with um, a, a spacecraft. As a result of this, he, you know, he was, he's been an unspoken believer. Remember Muhammad Ali? Yeah, you know, yeah, the boxer. He's always believed in UFOs. Um, uh, the, the occurrence happened one day when he was running in New York's Central Park. He saw a bright light appear over his head, which he followed around for as long as he could. His friend and trainer, Angelo Dundee, was with him and also saw it. Not only did they see it, but so did many other people that night, including an airline pilot who reported seeing it while touching down at Newark Airport at that time. Ronald Reagan, before he was ever president, he, had, he said he witnessed a UFO on the highway down from L.A., and there was a second sighting in 1974 while he was flying in a plane as governor of California. He saw a bright light flying near the craft. The pilot saw it too and decided to follow it around for a while before the growing object suddenly disappeared. Robbie Williams, 2006, best-selling English singer, took a hiatus from his career in entertainment to explore the world of UFOs and extraterrestrial life. I mean, this, it goes on and on and on. You, you, you're going to find all kinds of people that have seen this stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's... The, it's like the it's like the X Files says they're out there. If you haven't seen them yet, okay, that's I'm sorry, you know, 
that you haven't seen a UFO yet. What can I tell you? It's it's one of those things that when it happens to you, you'll know. That's all there is to it, you know. And there's all there. There's not much else that can be said about it. I'm gonna take a very quick break, guys. When I get back, I'll see if I can try to finish the the uh, the stories. If not, then I will play one of my old interviews. And uh, maybe if you want to call in, you can do so. It's uh, you can call in area code three four seven two three seven five one eight seven. That's area code three four seven two three seven five one eight seven. So this is Emmy from the Graveyard Shift, and I am punching in, and I'll be right back. Put your warp speed on hold, Graveyard Shift fan. Our illustrious host, Emmy. Why the hell does he always say that word, illustrious? We'll be right back after this break with more shifty, yeah, like shitty awesomeness. I can't believe this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? Um, oh, okay. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be right back. Bad. Trying to be what I used to be, I can't 
Broadcasting live from a war-torn battlefield, from atop a 200-foot-tall, last-of-its-kind woolly mammoth, driving a bunch of drunk zombies on their way to an all-you-can-eat super flesh buffet. Teaching a cat how to speak fluent Klingon. You're listening to the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. And now, just finished from sucker-punching your country's ruthless dictator, because he's just that damn cool. Here's your illustrious host. All right, guys. Once again, that's Aw Yeah from Fiverr.com doing all those great intros for the show. I want to thank him. He is absolutely the best. I will never use anybody else as far as I'm concerned. If you want to use him for your show, if you want to use him for anything, you can find him on F-I-V-E-R-R.com, and his username is Aw Yeah. I think it's A-W-W-W-Yeah or something to that effect. But when you see somebody with that name, you know that's him. So at any rate, what I'm going to do, guys, I'm going to play one of our old interviews. Since we're going to have Mr. Nick Redford on the show pretty soon, I figure what the heck it would be the perfect opportunity to hear one of his old interviews with us. This is from August of 2014, and I believe he's talking about the, um, you know, I can't remember which interview this was. I think I want to say this was the um, the Roswell one. I'm not 100% sure. Well, at any rate, here it is, our interview with Nick Redford back in August of 2014. Enjoy. How you doing, Shifties? This is Emmy from the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. I am on the air with the illustrious, the awesome, the legendary, Senor Nick Redfern. He's been interested in UFOs since 1978. His main area of research centers around determining what has been learned about the UFO subject at an official level in Britain. He spent hundreds of hours at the public record office in London and has uncovered thousands of pages of previously classified Royal Air Force, Air Ministry, and Ministry of Defense files on UFOs dating from the Second World War. Nick is the author of several best-selling books on UFOs, including The FBI Files, The FBI's UFO Top Secrets Exposed, Cosmic Crashes, The Incredible Story of the UFOs That Fell to Earth. Nick also lectures on the UFO subject both in UK and abroad. However, his most recent book that we're going to discuss today is Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Nick, how you been, buddy? Hey, I'm doing good, thanks. How's it going? It's going good, my friend. It's My God, it's been a long time. A lot of people don't realize yeah. you, you were with it's been, us. Um, a couple of years, I should think, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been yeah, yeah. a few years. Yeah, you were with us back when um, th- uh, men, three, is it three men, yeah, three men seeking monsters. How about that? Oh, well, yeah, that, that was going back a long time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a blast from the past. So, yeah. so uh, I'm, I'll tell you, my friend. I got to. I'm pretty excited about this new book. Can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about about it and how you got involved with it? Yeah, well, the book called uh, "Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind," and it's basically about mysterious, suspicious deaths in the UFO field, like researchers and investigators who got too close to the truth, but also things like missing pilots and. Um, dead pilots who are reportedly chasing UFOs. So, in other words, it's kind of like the dark side of the UFO subject, where in some cases people have died at the hands or been killed at the hands of the UFO phenomenon itself. Others may have been literally sort of taken out by assassins for, for getting too close. And um, the main reason I wrote the book um, was largely because, well, if you're going to write a book, you know, I always take the view that you've got to give the reader something new. You don't just want to go over old ground um, if they're going to spend the money on buying a book. And so I always think carefully what I'm going to write about. And so I sort of cast it around for a few ideas. And 
was surprised to learn that there'd never been really like a full-length book that documented all the mysterious deaths from 47 to the present day. You know, one or two people may have written articles here and there, huh. but it was kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, if you've just got a bunch of pieces on the floor, it doesn't make any sense or people don't appreciate the scale of it. So when you put the pieces together, you see how many cases there have been and, and how many unusual deaths there have been over the last sort of 70 years since the whole subject kicked off in 47. Right, yeah, there has been quite a bit of uh, of if you really and, and and it's that's pretty amazing that you've decided on that subject matter. It's true. I don't think I have ever seen a book uh like center on that because I, I and and I'm glad that you finally did it because I think it needs to be done. There's there have been a lot of people that have lost their lives, have been injured critically, permanently and threatened. Uh, because of this subject, and I think it's finally time that somebody uh, reports about it. Um, now, is there was there a particular uh, case that really stood out for you that you just said, okay, that's it, I'm doing this book? I mean... Mm. Well, there's actually a few. I mean, one that really stands out is a subject you don't hear very much about, and uh, most of your listeners, I'm sure, and you as well, will have heard of the phenomenon of cattle mutilations, um, where cattle are found dead all across the United States with organs removed from the body, blood removed. And now, look, looks- Nick, Nick, now look, man, look, uh, I know you like to eat weird stuff, but look, this isn't about food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. Please <laughs> no, I do like meat. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, you have all these attacks across the U.S. of cattle being, you know, sort of drained, absorbed, with blood removed, organs removed, some cases it looks like laser type technology has been used on the animals and um, clearly not being done by wild animals like coyotes or whatever. And these reports have gone on across the US since the 60s and particularly on rural farmland and people reported seeing strange lights in the sky and unmarked helicopters in the day after, days afterwards as if they're sort of monitoring the scene. Um, but there's a there's like an offshoot of this, which is the whole human mutilation phenomenon. Now, although you don't hear about this as much, there yeah. actually have been a couple of dozen cases, or there may have been more. This is just the ones we know about, where people have been found killed, like sort of in the woods or in the wilderness, and it doesn't look like they were attacked by wild animals, um, you know, like mountain lions or grizzly bears. It looks again as if. It's the sort of precise cuts, medical cuts almost, organs removed, lips even removed, tongues removed, that kind of thing. And this brings me sort of back to your question. Certainly one of the darkest stories I talk about in the book um, came from a former U.S. Air Force intelligence officer, a man named Leonard Stringfield. Uh And Stringfield, when he was with the military, actually had his own very close encounter with like a squadron of UFOs in 1946. Then when he retired from the military, he began digging into the subject more because of, he, because of his position as an intelligence officer. He retained a lot of close links with people in the military. One of these was a friend and colleague, a high-ranking officer, who told Stringfield how in 1972 he'd been stationed out in um, Cambodia. This was at the height of the um, Vietnam War. And he was part of a unit that was sent out... Um, to try and track down like a, a North Vietnamese unit that they needed to take out. And um, although they didn't find the unit, they got to the area where 
the North Vietnamese people were supposedly working from, but came into this clearing only to see like a huge, about 50-foot diameter globe-shaped object sitting on tripod legs. But that wasn't the worst thing they saw. Well, what they actually encountered was like a group of very strange-looking creatures, which we could really only call aliens, sort of five to six feet tall, skinny with large heads, and they're reportedly loading human bodies, dead bodies and body parts into these huge bins and sealing them and loading them aboard the craft, almost like a like a meat packing factory equivalent, something like that. Yeah. And reportedly there was a firefight between the two and the military was forced to retreat and the aliens supposedly loaded all these bins aboard the craft and shot up into the sky. Now, it's a very controversial story, obviously, but Leonard Stringfield, you know, that's his real name, he, he's a verifiable U.S. Air Force intelligence officer, went openly and publicly on the record to say that he got the story from an equally respected intelligence, uh, excuse me, military officer. Um, and it really sort of demonstrates, you know, one of the reasons why there may be so much secrecy surrounding the subject, because... You know, you have this really dark side to the phenomenon that probably nobody in government would ever want to reveal. Well, no, of course not, especially if there was uh, deaths uh, involved. And, you know, but I mean, can you imagine just, I mean, the the, uh, the amount of, <laughs> uh, I mean, of uh, uh, keeping people quiet, how much they would have to pay these people off, the families involved with these people that, and, you know, a lot of the, what you what you're saying sounds almost identical to uh, the, the the mystery sound surrounding Plum Island yeah. uh, over there in uh, near uh, I believe it's near New York I believe and uh, or Montauk excuse me and um, uh, like well this is a much older story but uh, about the, the USS Eldridge with the, the Philadelphia experiment mm. although that's more of like um, you know mass teleportation and you know some although some people think it w had something to do with UFOs but you know there's uh, there's a lot of debate about that of course um but so i mean that's unbelievable that and you know the thing about the, the the firefight also sounds again like the 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 battle of la which yeah. a lot of people you know now uh did you did you there was a story that i heard on this i i think it was a documentary you were on and uh i want to say it was the history channel which by the way ladies and gentlemen those of you that do not know which shame on you for not knowing Nick has been featured on Ancient Aliens. I saw you. I couldn't believe. It. I was like, "Oh my God!" <laughs> Congratulations on that. That was that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, quite a few of those Ancient Aliens. It's not a bad show, really. It's pretty. Yeah. Good. Did, did you ever meet that guy, the Aliens guy? Have you ever met him in person? Which one? The one that goes, you know, the guy, the one with the crazy hair. Oh, Giorgio. Yeah, I met him a couple of times. He's a nice guy. So you know, very down to earth and got no ego about him or nothing. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Oh, okay, I was just, I've always wanted to meet him, and, like, you know, everyone always wants him to do that alien thing, because you know, that's what he's famous for. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so he, you know, you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know, Nick was on there, and, and I think it was that episode that they were just, they were talking about, they were interviewing this Japanese pilot, and it was a rather famous case where it was, I think it was one of the first times that it was actually documented on an, an air traffic controller's log, where the Japanese pilot saw these unidentified flying objects off to his um, to his side of, off the plane, and they were following the the commercial air. And this was a commercial airplane, and and they were following so closely that in fact, not only did the radio become garbled, which obviously, I mean, that's that's something very common that happens, 
but also his flight path got screwed up and he, he actually had to drop in, in, in altitude to an almost very dangerous level. So uh, I don't know if you remember that particular, uh, I mean, I wish I could, I could remember the name of the pilot, but it just, um, I, don't, I, I didn't I don't remember that one, unfortunately. No. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll look it up while we're discussing, but it, it wasn't something that I had prepared, but it just, what you were saying reminded me of that. Now let, let's go back to these events that keep happening about all these, these occurrences of, uh, of fatal and all, and, you know, uh, near fatal. Why do you think, these if this is really happening that these aliens are coming and they're mutilating humans and whatnot what do you think could be the reason behind it i mean why why would they need massive quantities of us or however many quantities that they're that they're getting well i think a lot of it could be sort of based around just medical experimentation or scientific experimentation in the same way that we experiment on you know small animals like rats or whatever it may just be that we're considered like a lower life form and, you know, it's their right to use us as they please. Um, you know, because we kind of view ourselves as like the top dog, so to speak, you know, that we couldn't imagine somebody doing that to us, you know, the human race. But I think actually that could be what it is. You know, somebody is coming here from somewhere else and they're experimenting on the natives, so to speak, to, you know, to see what makes them tick and what their biology is like, and if they view us as a really low life form, they may not have any sort of consideration of the value of human life. You know, they may just be the equivalent of a person stepping on an ant or something like that. You know. Right. Well, or, or as the, to to do a little geek reference here from the Avengers movie, like when Loki tells Nick Fury, you know, uh, you know, when the, the the boot steps on the ant kind of thing. Well, that's not that's not the exact quote. I'm going to get yelled at for that, but. <laughs> But that's just kind of like that kind of thing where uh, we're the ants, they're the boot. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. Now, um, have you? Did you actually get to interview anyone that you know maybe was a, a survivor of one of these uh, incidents? And and if so, uh, what is it that they like? What were some of the? I mean, uh, more interesting uh, accounts that they that they discussed with you, if you can say that. Well, I mean. I mean, the ones I talk about in the book, I mean, all those cases ended up fatally, so, you know, the people aren't necessarily around to interview anyway. But, you know, right. we have their accounts on file, and we can investigate the circumstances of their deaths. For me, one of the most fascinating ones goes way back to 1953 and involves two UFO researchers, one named Carl Hunrath, and the other one was named Wilbur Wilkinson. They were both originally from uh, Racine, Wisconsin, and in early 52, um, Hunrath, Carl Hunrath, who was like a, an inventor, he moved to Los Angeles and shortly after Wilkinson moved with his wife and kids um, to the same area so they could all carry on their UFO research. Well, in the weeks and months after their arrival in Los Angeles, they started hooking up with a lot of the early so-called contactees, as they were known in the 50s, people who claimed contact with human-like aliens. This involved uh, the, the people such as George Adamski and also a man named George Hunt Williamson. Well, it turned mm -hmm. out that Carl Hunrath and Wilbur Wilkinson spent a lot of time with um, George Hunt Williamson, and he supposedly taught them ways to psychically contact the aliens. 
And the story is that they actually managed to sort of like call the aliens down and had some sort of like a psychic exchange with them. Now, from there, they were later supposedly told that they would have the opportunity to actually meet with the aliens in the mountains of California and and possibly even be taken on board a UFO, which, I mean, sounds a bizarre story. But what happened, this was all scheduled for November 1953. And sure enough, what happened was that Hunrath and Wilkinson rented an aircraft because Hunrath himself was an amateur pilot. Well, actually, I should say he's a professional pilot. He was in the Second World War. And um, they took to the skies from a small airport just outside of Los Angeles to liaise and meet up with these reported aliens in the mountains. That was the last of anybody ever saw of them. They took off from the uh, the airfield, and they were never, ever seen again. The aircraft was never found, no wreckage, sort of no telltale, you know, um, smokestacks and flames coming from the mountains or the woods or whatever. And okay. despite the fact that the police launched a, an extensive search, that local emergency services went out and, you know, emergency planes were sent to circle the area, nothing was found. And, and 71 years later, excuse me, 61 years later, still nothing has been found. And oh. um, a lot of researchers at the time thought that, you know, this story about meeting up with aliens really did occur, but perhaps they'd even been hostile aliens and had not only kidnapped Hunrath and Wilkinson, but had kidnapped the airplane, you know, or captured the aircraft as well, I should say. And um, and it's sort of fascinating and a weird story because when they vanished, they vanished on the radar literally like 10 minutes after they'd taken to the skies. In other words, mm-hmm. it wasn't like they'd been missing for a month and nobody realized and then they had to look for them. It was like the investigation began immediately. And yet, for miles, you know, the, the ground was scoured, and was, as I said, there was no smoke coming up from anywhere, nothing. And um, and the mystery still remains. It was actually big news in the Los Angeles newspapers of the day. Um, you know, UFO researchers vanish after alleged allegedly planning to meet with aliens. So it's a very strange story that still goes on now. Right, and I mean, you, you actually—I was going to ask something, but you got—you actually answered the question because. I was going to, I was wondering like, well, I mean, well, how do they know that it was them that like they were actually abducted, but if they were already investigating it, it was kind of, I mean, you know, it doesn't take very much uh, detective work to kind of put, put one and one together. I mean, mm-hmm. that's exactly the the topic that they were researching. And, to, and, you know, it's amazing to me that there was nothing left normally when you have an abduction or, or, mm-hmm. or something like that, there, there's something either a scorch mark like you indicated or or some kind of but the fact that there was no evidence whatsoever that's pretty amazing yeah it was just for all intents and purposes it was you know they just vanished totally wow well let me ask you this we were talking earlier about um the philadelphia experiment and i know uh do you you think the morris jessup who was involved in in that do you think that that he was murdered in 1959 Mm -hmm. as a result of his investigation I actually do. I've got an entire chapter in the book on Jessup, and um, Morris Jessup was a very interesting guy. Um, He sort of really got into the UFO subject in terms of interest in the late 40s and wrote a number of good books um, in the 1950s, certainly the most famous and influential one probably being The Case for the UFO. And that's a very good book, and it sort of deals with his research into UFOs 
Um, but also his investigations based on his personal travels to like Central America and South America, investigating like the, the old South American pyramids and things like this, which he felt were built by extraterrestrials, or at least with alien technology. Um, and in the years that progressed, he got more involved in ufology. And then he crossed paths with this guy named Carlos Allende, who claimed to be one of the sailors either involved in the, the Philadelphia experiments in 1943 or at least witnessed it. That's kind of a bit of an unclear area. But for people who aren't aware, the Philadelphia experiment was this alleged experiment in the Philadelphia Navy Yard in 43 to try and right. make a warship invisible, either to radar or magnets, um, to magnetic mines, but it may have gone wrong and literally rendered the ship optically invisible and had sort of catastrophic psychological and physical effects on the crew. And it was all hidden under this barrier of secrecy. Right. Well, it turns out that um, Jessup's book, The Case of the UFO, a copy of it was mailed anonymously to the Navy um, filled with all these annotations and words about um, the Philadelphia experiments and other sort of secret issues and the pyramids. And it was actually, the copy then reached like a, a weapons research division in the Navy. And the guys within this project actually contacted Jessup and invited him to fly him out to D.C. Oh. to speak about his book. And he was kind of both sort of excited but a little bit, apprehensive, you know, the government wants to fly me out to talk about my book, you know, that was kind of right. almost unheard of. Yeah. Um, but what happened was that it wasn't like a good cop, bad cop situation, they legitimately just wanted to know. Um, and so he told the story of his research and they said, well, we've received um, a copy of your book, it's got all these strange writings in it, whatever, can you identify the writing? So they passed the book over to him, and then Jessup realized it was this Carlos Allende who had been corresponding with him. He recognized the writing. Exactly, yeah. And it sounds like, with hindsight, they may well have been less interested in Jessup and more interested in trying to find out who was blowing the whistle on the Philadelphia experiment. That right, could have been right. the crux of it. But what happened was that in the aftermath of this visit, um, a lot of weird stuff began, into, began to happen to Jessup in his life. For example, uh, he began to get these weird hang-up phone calls. Um, his mail was intercepted and uh, torn open and resealed as if to try and, you know, to let him know he was being watched. Uh -huh. um, he reported occasionally seeing strange characters outside the house and cars driving slowly outside. He actually became quite paranoid. And then he had this weird um, car accident, which he couldn't understand uh -huh. how it had happened. And it was almost like something had taken control of his mind and forced him off the road and he was actually badly injured but everything sort of really sort of came to a head in a, a finale so to speak in 1959 um when he actually he died well i say died you know um he may well have right. been murdered this occurred yep. in april 1959 at a place called the matheson hammock park in, right, Miami, right. in miami florida and um, Jessup's body was found in his car. He was just sitting bolt upright. There was a hose pipe going from the exhaust through the front window. You know, sort of classic case of suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. But there were a lot of weird issues surrounding the suicide. For example, just the night before, he contacted a friend, a close friend named Dr. Manson Valentine. And Jessup told Valentine, he said, I've made a major breakthrough. 
in the subject, we need to meet up tomorrow for lunch or dinner. And he, Matt Valentine said he was like really excited. Didn't sound like a man who within 24 hours was going to kill himself. In fact, the exact opposite. You know, he wanted to share what this new discovery was. On top of that, despite the fact that it looked like a suicide, you know, in, in a suicide case, the victim is generally autopsied just to make sure that, you know, it wasn't staged to look like a suicide. Right. But in Jessup's case, the the burial was rushed through. There was no autopsy. It was just done very, very quickly and you know, and then he was he was buried. So, you know, when you put all these different aspects together, the threats, the weird car accidents, the male interference, the sense of somebody watching him and then, you know, the uh, the whole angle of how the night before he was he was dead, you know, he clearly wasn't acting like a man on his in his last moments and the race through with the autopsy. When you put all that together, you know, one issue would be enough, but when you put all those together, I think we've got to look seriously at the idea that Jessup actually was murdered, you know. Right, right. And, you know, and there have been so many different interpretations of the story and, yeah. and different. I mean, I had a gentleman, uh, interviewed a gentleman called uh, Dr. Kevin D. Randall oh, yeah. a few shows ago. Yeah. and, and um, Kevin. Yeah, he's a great guy, and he's very, very, uh, I mean, just like you, I mean, he's very well-researched, very educated, and um, and he was telling me about another version of the story, and, and but really, it all boils down to the fact that there, there was just too many, um, too many uh, things going on with this man that, that I mean, I, I am with you on the, I think he was murdered as well, but, um, you know, one of those things that who knows if we'll ever know the real truth, and, you know, this isn't the only case, I mean, there's so many, I mean, heck, you wrote a book about it, about these people dying with, uh, in connection with UFOs and, and especially with the government being involved. And I think, you know, uh, going way, way back to the, I don't know if you want to call it the beginning, but at least the, the, the mainstream public beginning, uh, maybe one of it of the Roswell UFO crash of July, 1947. Now I also discussed this with Dr. Randall and, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about the suspicious death that surrounded that crash and what you thought about that. Yeah, there actually are a couple of cases, um, you know, that, that do sound quite suspicious. Um, for example, certainly the most famous one, um, back in 1989, a man named Glenn Dennis, who was a mortuary assistant in Roswell at the time, surfaced and told this story about how in the summer of 47, when the Roswell crash occurred and the bodies and the wreckage were reportedly taken to the military base in the town of Roswell itself, um, he got a weird phone call from somebody at the base asking if he got any caskets which were sort of a size enough for a child and could they be sort of like hermetically sealed, you know, to preserve uh. the bodies. And, of course, if the military just phoned up and said, you know, have you got three or four coffins, he might have thought, well, it's just a, you know, a tragic plane crash or something like that. But when they're asking if they can be sealed, hermetically sealed, and... They, were, they needed to be child size. Then he realised something strange was going on. So Dennis, yeah. Glenn Dennis, went out to the base because all the you know the Roswell's a little town. Everybody knew each other. Um, the guys, like the sentries at the, at the base, assumed he'd been called out there because they all knew him as the mortuary assistant. So it was like, hey, Glenn, you know, come on through. Um, not realising, you know, he'd just taken it upon himself to go to the base. But when he got uh -huh. in there, he met with a nurse friend of his who told him that, you know, he ought to get out immediately. His life could be in danger. And she quickly told him the story of seeing these strange bodies, which 
she said had been found out in the desert. Nobody knew what they were or where they were from. It was just they, the story was a rancher had stumbled upon this huge field of wreckage as if something had exploded, and there were these bodies there as well. Now, at the, when this was 47, uh, Glenn Dennis stayed silent for 42 years, didn't go public until 1989. And although he wanted to reveal the story, and he also wanted to say who he got the story from, which he said was a nurse, he was worried about exposing her if, for example, you know, um, he revealed the real name and so on. So he gave her a pseudonym of Naomi Self and said she was a nurse. But the more that researchers dug into it, most of the evidence pointed towards a woman named Miriam Bush, who was actually an executive secretary in the hospital rather than a nurse. And um, what happened was that when Glenn Dennis went public, this was like September 89, it turns out that Miriam Bush had actually told her family way back in 47 at what she, about what she'd seen. So almost about seeing these bodies. So it almost is the case with a, you know certainty that Miriam Bush was Naomi Self, the name that um, Glenn Dennis huh. used. And right. it turns out that when Glenn Dennis went public in um, September or thereabouts, 1989, Miriam Bush got very paranoid that somebody was watching her, that she was, you know, being followed. And the fact that Glenn Dennis had told the story and revealed who he got it from, she may have well had a lot of um, reasons to think she was being followed. You know, somebody yeah, may have been so, trying yeah. to track her down, you know, after 60, 50 years and concerned about what she was going to say. Well, it turns out that in just before the end of 1989 and just a couple of months before Glenn Dennis essentially told her story, Miriam Bush checked into a hotel room, actually using her sister's name um, and her sister's identity. In other words, it was like she was trying to hide her tracks and... And, and vanish. But what actually happened was that the day after she checked into the motel, she was found dead in the room with a plastic bag over her head and bruises on her arms. And the police, you know, obviously there was a police investigation. They right. suggested it was suicide, but the family, oh, the family did not, you know, the, the family questioned that and one thought there were suspicious aspects to it. Of course, of and, course. Um, so that is like a very sinister story where it sounds like that she was silenced because she may well have been one of the last original people from 47 still living who could have really blown the whistle on what happened and somebody may have taken steps to ensure that, you know, she never was able to do that. And, you know, it's funny, uh, a lot of uh, people in the UFO community and, and, the, and you know, in, in our field, they, they they often attribute Roswell and all these things to how to why our technology has advanced. Mm. Like maybe we reverse engineered yes. some things that we found out there. I mean, because you know if if you kind of time it like where the, when the microchip was invented, mm. when IBM was really getting into its heyday, and if you kind of connect it with it's a little bit of a coincidence. Too much if you if you know what I mean. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that whole period was a weird period, 1947. You know, a lot of strange things going down. It was the year in which you had Roswell. You had the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which brought in the era of, of flying saucers. Right, the year right. In which the National Security Act was passed. It was the year the CIA was created. Uh -huh. And, you know, the, and at the top of it, Roswell. So, you know, it's very significant uh year when the, the government and the military were all being reshaped and reformatted into new organizations and um 
So if anything was going to sort of kick off that time in terms of, you know, new programs and projects looking into UFOs, that probably would have been when it was, you know. Um, you had a lot of new organizations wanting to get in on the UFO action, if you like, and try and figure out right. what was going on. Exactly. I mean, and that's, you know, the the whole thing about Project Blue Book and all that stuff. And, and you know, and, and really it just came to almost a culmination mm-hmm. of just, just oh my God! I mean, when the well, like the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in November of 1963. Now this one, it, I mean, I'm a pretty open-minded kind of guy, you know that. But mm-hmm. I gotta tell you, I've been hearing this stuff about there being a UFO connection mm-hmm. with the president's uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination. I am trying. I mean, it's a stretch for me. Mm. Can you kind of connect the dots here? What, what are the what, what is yeah. the story behind? Well, no, yeah, you're right. I mean, within ufology, um, there are a lot of people who do find the idea that you know the two worlds' biggest conspiracy theories, UFOs and the Kennedy assassination, the idea that it could actually be one big conspiracy. You know, so for some people, that's just too much. But the fact is, when we go looking into the UFO subject. We do, and I mean the Kennedy assassination, excuse me, we do find links with the UFO subject. There's absolutely no doubt about that. For example, I'll give you a few examples. Yeah, um, please. Back actually just three days before the Roswell event occurred, there was a very similar event at a place called Maury Island in Washington State. I've where, heard about this, oh, okay. yeah. Well, what happened was that like a fleet of UFOs were seen flying in the sky, and uh, one of them reportedly exploded and showered all this wreckage into the harbour. Now, one of the guys who collected all of this material, much of which was handed over to the military for study, was a man named Fred Chrisman. Fred Chrisman was a very shadowy, weird guy, linked and plugged into the world of espionage and spying and all sorts of things. And funnily enough, Chrisman, who handled this wreckage, actually popped up in the Kennedy assassination in 63, to the extent that Uh, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, who was heavily involved in the investigation of the JFK assassination, he came to believe that Chrisman, who found this wreckage, or recovered the wreckage, was actually one of the gunmen on the grassy knoll. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, on top of that, uh, Chrisman was friends with a man named Guy Bannister. Guy Bannister, in 47, was a special agent of the FBI. At the time of the assassination, he had his own... Um, private eye company, Guy Bannister Associates, in uh, in New Orleans. But Bannister, in the summer of 47, undertook many UFO investigations for his boss, J. Edgar Hoover, in the FBI. And um, Bannister's FBI files on his UFO investigations have now been declassified. So that's two people out of literally dozens who have a, like a an ongoing link between the world of espionage, UFOs, and the Kennedy assassination. Now, another one, is that the the bigger part of the story is the reason why Kennedy was supposedly killed in relation to UFOs. The story is that he wanted to reveal to the general public all around the world what he knew about UFOs, and whoever was responsible for hiding it, you know, this sort of super-secret group, that in many respects seems to be more powerful than the government itself. You know, it's like its own independent government. They perceived that, you know, there's just no way we're going to let him do that. You know, we've kept the secret long enough, there's no way he's going to tell the world. So the countdown was on to his death. But the story is that Kennedy, even though he was president, you know, couldn't get the full picture, so he went looking for it himself. Now, it turns out that on the day before he was killed, Kennedy was shot in Dealey Plaza, Dallas, on November the 22nd, 1963. 
1963. The day before, November the 21st, he was actually already in Texas, and um, he opened a new scientific wing at a place called Brooks Air Force Base in Texas. And mm-hmm. it was dedicated to research into outer space medicine, you know, how the human body would be affected or would react to low gravity or no gravity, you know, in, in space or on other planets. It was Nobody really knew what the effects would be then, so that was the whole point of this wing that was being set up to, to research that. And it turns out that Kennedy had a behind-closed-doors meeting at Brooks Air Force Base one day before he was shot with a man named Major General Theodore Bedwell. And Theodore yeah. Bedwell held a major medical position at what at the time was called Wright Field uh, and later became Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Oh. It turns out he held a major military and medical position at the base in the summer of '47 the very base which in the summer of 47 the Roswell bodies were reportedly taken to. And because of uh, Major General uh, Bedwell's position, he would have been one of the ideal people to see the bodies. And so here we have Kennedy, one day before he was shot, meeting that very man in a behind-closed-doors meeting. Uh, and then 24 hours later, he's dead. So, you know, we do have a lot of weird stuff like that going on. No, okay. I mean, well, I can see, I guess, how when you uh, when you have those connections and and you have those people that have been involved in other things, I suppose I can see how somebody would come to some kind of a conclusion. I mean, still, it's it's no, I don't know if there ever will be a clear cut, uh, for sure, definite. Oh yeah, this is how it happened, and this is why it happened. Maybe when everybody that's had something to do with it, and maybe even when their family members are gone from this earth, yeah, and maybe not even then, but um. I I I I mean that does at least clear up the reason you know why there would be a connection. So now uh kind of fast forwarding a tiny bit, you know, you have all of these things happening here. Well, you know, how about in good old England, you know, you've got like a British man named Edward Bryant and I think you mentioned uh, him uh earlier uh he apparently died in 1967. Uh, two years before what we were just talking about, after encountering a UFO in the screen. Now, what, what, what's so, what is the significance of, of him and his death involved in this? Well, yeah, Edward Bryant was a guy who claimed um, a close encounter with a UFO in 1965. He lived in a little, like centuries-old little English village in the southwest of, the, of England. And in 1965, he said one particular morning in the fields behind his house, he lived in like a very isolated little village on place called Dartmoor. Dartmoor is actually where Sir Arthur Conan Doyle set the novel The Hand of the Baskervilles. So it's like I was... mysterious, foggy, more right. filled with old stone circles and castles and things like that. Yeah, you beat me to it. I was going to say that. <laughs> and it actually still looks like that today. It's like taking a trip back, you know, three centuries or something. And wow. um, But what happened was that Bryant said in the field he could see this, like a gleaming flying saucer. Um and he was sort of amazed and tentatively walked over to it and said these very human-looking aliens came from it. But there's a few subtle differences. The faces sort of looked enigmatic, and there was sort of the, elo- the heads were sort of elongated, you know, noticeably more than you would see in a human. And there was sort of this message about, you know, love, peace, and harmony, and we all need to live together, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, the the story got out, and it was investigated by a number of, or actually two UFO researchers, one named Norman Oliver and a woman named Eileen Buckle. And they, between them, they wrote quite a you know a lot of words and articles and books about it. Um, 
But what happened was that um, Bryant actually died of a very fast-acting brain tumor. And one of the theories that's been put forward, that there are indications that, that um, Bryant may have been sort of kidnapped, if you like, probably the best correct term, by military personnel. And there are parts of the story he couldn't remember. And the story is that he was sort of had his mind kind of stimulated by microwave technology used by the British military in an effort to try and uncover the secrets that were still buried in his mind. In other words, the military knew something was going on, and but they wanted to get the information. So it was sort of like partly using mind control and hypnotic technology to try and get the information out of his mind, but also to stimulate certain parts of his mind where the information might be buried. But the story was that they were sort of over-enthusiastic with the use of this technology. And the overuse of the microwave technology actually provoked the development of the brain tumor and killed him. So in other words, he wasn't killed by exposure to the UFO phenomenon. He was inadvertently killed by the military or the scientific people that were using microwave technology on him to try and uncover these deeply buried memories and reportedly again the whole thing was covered up and the people on the project were you know sort of um, warned never to sort of overstep the mark again in this sort of mm. situation so um, you know also any very tragic for him really that's a, that's unreal I mean yeah. and, I mean and, and, and you know if we had never heard uh, if he had never said anything beforehand we would have never known anything about it really I mean, we would never, no, never that's known the thing. I think the, the military only really got into it big time because his story was highlighted in books and articles and they were like, well, this sounds like a an interesting case. And there must have been some aspect to it that made them want to dig into it further, you know, because we don't see evidence of this going on in every UFO case or landing, obviously. So there must have been something significant about this one. And But uh, as I said, as soon as they got their claws into him, so to speak, he was like treated like a guinea pig and just technology right. was used on it to try and you know find these buried memories and but the use of the technology was what sort of led to his downfall and the create and the the, the um, development of the tumor yeah that's scary man yeah. that's not the only person that's been killed really for his their knowledge of of the ufos i mean look at you know jim keith the ufo author yeah. murdered in 1999 that wasn't too long ago. well i guess it was a while ago i mean mm -hmm. right 2014 but I mean, what what about, I mean, do you think he was murdered for what he knew about your father? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Jim Keith story is one that sort of divides people into, into different areas. Jim Keith was someone, he wasn't just a UFO writer and conspiracy theorist, but he investigated all sorts of conspiracies, um, you know, political ones as well. At the time of his death in 99, he was investigating the, the death of Princess Diana in Paris, France in, in 97. Mm -hmm. um, he'd been looking into things like black helicopter reports, um, UFOs, and also this weird operation called the octopus. And the octopus was supposedly yeah. like, you know, when we look at governments and government agencies, we, you know, most people assume the government runs the country. The idea of the octopus is that it's like this hidden, almost invisible, very powerful group that they're the real rulers of the planet, so to speak, you know, and the people we think are in charge are almost just like 
puppet figures. Um, and the real. Oh, you mean like the you mean like the Illuminati? Yeah, kind, kind, of, deal, kind of like that, but sort of more modern day equivalent, made out of sort of huh. powerful, you know, installations and corporations and you know, big money uh, brokers, that sort of thing. And that's what the octopus was supposed to be. So uh -huh. he was investigating all this stuff at the time of his death. Now, what he actually did, he fell off a stage at the Burning Man Festival in Nevada, and mm. woke up the next morning in intense pain an ambulance took him to hospital and he'd fractured his tibia, his shin bone. So he had to go under the knife, but they said, well, we've got to knock you out completely. Now, it turns out that his nephew came to the hospital and Jim Keith confided in his um, his nephew that he'd seen, there was somebody at the hospital who shared a name with someone who he got into a big argument with about black helicopters. And Keith actually said, to his nephew, he said, you know, I, I actually I have reason to think that if I go under the knife, I'm not going to wake up. And he didn't. Yeah. He actually died on the operating table just for, oh a, fractured, just for a fractured shin bone. Um, now, the official story was he was killed by a blood clot that moved from his leg to his lungs and, you know, stopped yeah. his heart. That's not impossible. Huh. But what's, we what's really weird is that in his previous book, Keith was hot on the trail of a story concerning like um, a, a pill or a, a form of medicine in some form that could actually be unknowingly given to a person and it would actually create massive blood clots in their lungs oh, and make them, look, look, make them look like they died, ah. you know, just natural causes, but when it would be murder. It's just so weird that he died from the very thing yeah. that he was researching, you know. Yeah, that, that is. Yeah. very odd. That is odd. Wow, that's creepy, man. That it's almost is creepy like somebody stuff. sent a message out, you know. Um, right, right. Like, like out, hey, don't. Yeah, sort of take him out in the way that he was researching and just, you know, it'll put a warning to everybody else, so to speak. Yeah, well, you know, these they're powerful people behind this stuff, you know. I mean, and really, I think, you, you know, you guys that are doing this kind of uh, really intense research and, you know, you got your own bravery in that and you got to be careful and, mm. um, I think it I think it helps to get your face out there for people to yeah. actually see you because it makes it harder to, you know, actually do something because then hey, you know, whatever happened to that guy, I know who yeah. he is, I know I've seen him before, but yeah, exactly. well, you know yeah, exactly. You know, and, and you know, listen, we can we can talk about this all night, but really, ladies and gentlemen, you gotta buy this book. It's called Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. And and Nick, where can they get the book if they want to purchase? I'm assuming they can buy it on Amazon and Yeah, you can and, buy it on Amazon. You can also buy it on all other good online outlets. And you can also buy it off the shelves in Barnes and Noble. All my books are available off the shelf in Barnes and Noble stores as well. Right. And, and, you know, if anyone is interested in anything else that Nick has to offer, he's got his own website, which is Nick Redfern 14, which is, um, is his name, Nick Redfern 14, F-O-R-T-E-A-N dot blogspot dot com. It's actually called Nick Redfern's World of Whatever. And um, uh, you can see, well, for one thing, you can see what he looks like. It's a rather dashing British gentleman, if I do say so myself. And um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not and, entirely sure I'm dashing in any of the pictures. I'm wearing like an exploited T-shirt and a bandana, well, there, <laughs> which well, is how I normally dress. <laughs> and he, you can see his uh, his his post there and and what he has got. Um, now, Nick, I I noticed on your website you've got several um, events that you're that you're scheduled. I know there's just just a couple coming up. There's uh, 
the Paradigm Symposium, and then there's the 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 oh boy, uh, Mufon. Is that, are you still scheduled to appear there, or yeah, are we can... there's actually a few. I'm speaking next month. I'm speaking at the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, right. Virginia. Um, that's all about you know, obviously Mothman from the famous Mothman right, Prophecy right. book. Um, October, I'm speaking at the um, Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis. And then in November, I'm speaking at a MUFON conference in uh, Philadelphia. So uh, anybody wants to come along, say hello, and uh, you know, always happy to chat. And not like you know, I like to go to conferences, hang out, and you know, sort of hit the breeze, so yeah. to speak. Right, right. I mean, how about if they how about they treat you to 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 pint somewhere? How about that, huh? Oh yeah, that'll work. Yeah, nice cold. That'll pint work. Or several. There, <laughs> see, there you go, guys. Yeah. There, there you go. Put your warm feet on hold, Graveyard Shift fan. Our illustrious host, Emmy. Why the hell does he always say that word illustrious? We'll be right back after this break with more shifty, yeah, like shitty awesomeness. I can't believe this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? Um, no. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be right back. Well, there you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the um, the interview between myself and Nick. Nick's, Nick's a great guy. I always love having him on the show. We go way back with Nick. We did the show back in the brick and mortar studio. Maybe one day we'll be back in the studio. I'm not sure if it'll ever happen. Hopefully it will. Um, dare to dream, right? Well, anyway, guys, that's the show for now. I want to thank you all for hanging in there. Stay tuned. Next week, we will be airing the interview between myself and Marie D. Jones, author of Mind Wars, which you can purchase on Amazon.com or any local bookstore. So I'll see you guys next week. Until then, this is Emmy, and you've been listening to The Graveyard Shift, and I will be punching out. Until next week, guys, hang in there. You feel that universe? That satisfied feeling only comes from having finished a super epic, awesome episode of The Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. Hosted by your illustrious host, Emmy. Make sure to follow on blogtalkradio.com slash The Graveyard Shift and our Twitter feed. Hashtag Emmy Shift Show. To stay in the loop for future episodes. Until next time, Shifties, we're punching out.